This is Ron Taylor, the Rambling Boy, broadcasting live from Marfa Public Radio Studios in downtown Marfa. Everyone loves a murder mystery. Even though this one is a century old, it has everything. Forgeries, poison, a villainous butler, legal tangles, a hurricane, and a chance encounter. And it involved one of the wealthiest men in Texas. William Marsh Rice was 84 when he died in his Madison Avenue apartment in New York in 1900. He was worth $7 million. Rice came to Texas in 1837, opened a mercantile business in Houston, and made a fortune in the cotton business, acquiring large tracts of land, including 320 acres of downtown Houston along the way. He was a unionist, and when the Civil War started, he moved his business to Matamoros, Mexico, where his ships could avoid the Union blockade. After the war, he moved to New York City. He never returned to Texas, but he kept his business interests there alive through his Houston attorney, James A. Baker, Jr., founder of the law firm Baker, Botts, Andrews, and Horton, and grandfather of the former Secretary of State, James A. Baker. Rice married twice. His first wife died in 1863, and his second in 1896. He had no children. In 1891, he made a will, leaving the bulk of his fortune to a four-year university to be established in Houston after his death, the present Rice University. When his second wife died, her relatives challenged that will, and they hired a New York lawyer named Albert T. Patrick to institute proceedings in New York State. Patrick was totally unscrupulous. He first called at Rice's apartment under an assumed name to see if he could persuade Rice's butler, 22-year-old Charles Jones, to forge a letter on Rice's stationery saying that Rice wished to reach a compromise and settle the will case out of court. Patrick discovered that Jones had an equally felonious heart and that he felt he was underpaid and unappreciated. And together, they hatched a scheme to forge a new will for Rice in which he would leave the bulk of his estate to Patrick with a substantial dollop for Jones. In return for Jones's cooperation, Patrick also agreed to pay Jones $10,000 a year for the rest of his life. In the end, they forged not only a will, but a series of letters purporting to have been written by Rice to Patrick between 1896 and 1900, documenting a growing friendship 
and intending to explain why Rice would leave his estate to a relative stranger who was also a legal opponent. The will was dated June 30th, 1900. Rice was a semi-invalid, but during July and August 1900, his health seemed to improve, although he was still not aware that Patrick was coming to his apartment and visiting with his butler. According to later testimony, one night in late August, Patrick said to Jones, don't you think Mr. Rice is living a little too long for our interests? And told Jones that if he would let him in the apartment some night, he would put Rice out of the way. The murder was finally perpetrated by the Galveston storm of September 8, 1900. The storm destroyed a mill belonging to Rice, and Rice told Jones to send a telegram to James Baker in Houston, authorizing him to withdraw $2.5 million from Rice's account to rebuild the mill. Jones decided that the withdrawal of so much money would deplete the amount he expected to receive upon Rice's death. And so, instead of sending the telegram, he placed a chloroform-soaked sponge on Rice's face while he was sleeping. And in half an hour, Rice was dead. That was on a Saturday night. Jones called Patrick and Rice's doctor, and the doctor, suspecting nothing, signed a death certificate giving old age and heart failure as the cause of death. The undertaker came and took Rice's body away. After he left, Patrick rifled Rice's bedroom, taking away $450 in bills and some jewelry. The following Monday, Jones and Patrick met at Rice's apartment, and Patrick instructed Jones to make out several checks from Rice's checkbook, totaling $250,000, all payable to Albert Patrick, and all drawn on S.M. Swenson and Sons Bank. He told Jones to predate them to the previous week and to forge Rice's name to them. Now, Swenson and Sons was a small New York bank with Texas connections, and the teller lived near Rice's apartment building and walked to work every morning, always exchanging greetings with the doorman at Rice's building. On that Monday, as he passed Rice's building, the doorman said, Mr. Rice died Saturday night, and the teller paused for a moment to discuss Rice's career with the doorman. So, the teller thought that it was strange when Patrick, who had never been in the bank before, walked in a few hours later to cash $250,000 worth of checks, apparently signed by Rice. The bank cashed the checks, but they also brought in a handwriting export 
who quickly pronounced them forgeries. In the meantime, an autopsy showed that Rice's lungs were congested, which could have been caused by chloroform. Jones and Patrick were arrested and held in jail for forgery and then charged with murder. In January 1901, Jones made a complete confession and offered to turn state's evidence and testify against Patrick in return for immunity. The state released him from prison and put him up in a fairly luxurious apartment throughout Patrick's trial, after which Jones disappears from history. Patrick was convicted of murder and sentenced to death in the electric chair. But Governor Benjamin O'Dell commuted the sentence to life imprisonment. In 1912, Governor John Alden Dix, citing conflicting medical evidence, granted Patrick a complete pardon. He moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he became a leading figure in the Unitarian Church and where he died in 1940. Rice's original will remained in effect. And on September 23, 1912, the 12th anniversary of Rice's murder, Rice Institute in Houston was opened with an endowment of $4,631,259, approximately $120 million in today's dollars. You've been listening to Lon Taylor, The Rambling Boy. I'll be back again next Friday at 11 with another story about Texas. In the meantime, remember that you can read The Rambling Boy and The Big Men Sentinel every Thursday. This program has been made possible by a generous grant from the Summerlee Foundation's program in Texas history. <laughs>